through 8. And it's June 24th. I am going to work hard to wrap this up by the last, the second to the last week of July. So let's, let's pray to the Lord God of miracles that we can do it. All right, so we're going to pray, uh, sing the word of God, sit in silence and come back and hit our verse, uh, uh, talking about the new Jerusalem. All right, Lord, we, uh, we uh, pause and thank you for all you do. We don't ever want to uh, be remiss in recognizing your hand in our lives. The, I think we'll be surprised, Lord, at the benefits and the sustenance that you pour upon us, Lord. And so we just pray that you'll be with us as we consider your word and revelation. Help your spirit to teach us and uh, to relax on the details that we can't understand and just move forward as people of faith who love. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, you know, years ago, my younger brother and I and another guy, we uh, took paddle boards and we paddled from uh, Southern California to San Clemente Island, which is 26 miles, nautical miles across the ocean. And uh, after 10 hours, the island is right in front of you and you paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle, but it never gets any, you never get any closer. It's a point where you just want to die. And you just keep trying and trying, but I mean, we made it finally, but that, those last few hours where the island looms large, you can see the end, but you just can't get there. That's how I'm feeling about Revelation, is we are paddling and paddling and paddling, 
but, and the island is there, but uh, no matter what I try, I can't expedite the process. So being faithful to it, let's move on. Last week we read, covered verse 1, where John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And we discussed that, and we talked about all those things could possibly uh, mean in great detail, uh, heaven, earth, no more sea. So let's move out to verse 2 and continue to examine the revelation concerning the final eternal state of the earth and the heavens, which I reiterate, like the Bible reiterates, are never going away. Uh, at least not by God's hand. This earth is not, is forever, Scripture says. The only time it says there's an end is to the world, in the King James, which is to the age. So just to make that clear, so I think that John is describing what he sees as what happens after the wrapping up of that age, which I suggest started around 70 AD and continues on today. This stuff applies to us today that John has seen, but it's very spiritualized. So we have to take a little bit of time to read it. Verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So we have parallels here between a bride and the new Jerusalem. We have parallels between the bride of Christ and the New Jerusalem. We have some things to think about, and as we've stated before, it seems that the New Jerusalem represents the church then, that was uh, Christ, or the bride, or the body of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Perhaps Paul talking to that audience says, listen, I'm an apostle. We apostles have promised Christ a bride who would be clothed in righteousness. And that's what the the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. It's this, this bride. Now listen, in order to marry a new bride, because we know in the Old Testament that God talks about being married to Israel, that there was a nuptial, so to speak, between them, that that God was the husband and, and Israel was the bride, that God would have to divorce his previous wife. And the unfaithful old Jewish covenant community would be divorced by God so that he could marry a new bride, which is being introduced here in Revelation. Jeremiah and Isaiah both talk about God granting Israel a divorce. We rarely hear about that. I mean, it's divorces anathema. You can't be divorced and be a this or that or that. God divorced Israel for fornication. The very thing Jesus says divorce is permissible for is for going after other flesh idols in the case of Israel. Isaiah 50 verse 1 we read, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? whom I have put away. I, God, says that. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgression is your mother 
put away. We have read that Jerusalem is our, in heaven is our mother now. That's an actual quote from the New Testament. So here in the Old Testament, we're talking about divorce and, and about the transgression of the mother, that means Israel, and God puts a, uh, gives her a bill of divorcement. In Jeremiah 3.8, it says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. That's divorce. And given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not and went and played the harlot also. So we know that Revelation 17, we've gone through it, presents the unfaithful Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, as an adulterous wife. This is still an extension of the nation of Israel. Jesus' day, an adulterous wife. And Jerusalem is said to be an adulteress in order to make the divorce lawful. And that is why God is able to divorce her and then wipe her out. That's what he does. And he marries another, which is the church. And that's why the new Jerusalem represents the body, the bride, the church, all in one. So Matthew 5.32 is where Jesus says, you can put someone away for adulteries. And so that fits in with the teachings of Jesus. Here in Revelation 21, verse 2, God marries the new Jerusalem, which is the Christian body of believers. Now, this is, this is an interesting fact. There's a guy named Duncan McKenzie, and he says this following point concerning the marriage of the new Jerusalem after the divorcement and destruction of the old Jerusalem and its temple. Okay? Uh, and this is something that is symbolized. Do you, have you ever seen a film or been to a Jewish wedding where they take a glass, they put a, 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 a napkin or something over it, and they break it? Well, that breaking it is symbolic for the Jews in their history of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. It's occurring at a wedding. So uh, this is so appropriate. And Revelation 19, 1 through 9 shows that the destruction of the temple happened at the time of a wedding. So we recall the language of chapter 19. This is what it says, verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is here, and his wife has, has made herself ready. That wife was the church and the believers who had stayed clean and away from all the things that were being heaped upon them. The wife, under apostolic leadership, has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It should be really clear who this is and what this is. This is the, the, the Christian church now who has come through the tribulation. They have seen things through, and Paul is presenting them to Christ as a virgin bride clothed in righteousness. So when it says this is the righteousness of the saints, contextually we have to say the righteousness of the saints when? Today? Is this talking about our righteousness as Christians today that was given to Christ here as described and, and that, that we are his bride? Well, the saints of the church then and there are who it's talking about. 
They're the ones who went through the tribulation. They're the ones who withstood all the things the apostles in their leadership role, who were called by Christ to lead them, did and followed. And as they, as they uh, gave their allegiance to the apostles by the Spirit, they were led through to safety. That was the bride. We are not that bride. That bride was taken. That bride was Christ. So does that bride continue to be the church and the body? I think it does. Other people would say no. Full-blown, full-radical, full-preterists would say, no, it's done over. No, we are not the, still in the body of Christ. We're not still, it's all been completed. Um, but like what that, scrap, scrapture? What that scripture says uh, that we just sang, uh, the word of God is living in power for a sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, it's, it's, the word of God is uh, living and powerful, and it's eternal. The, the grass withers, the flower f- falls away, but the word of God endures forever. If the word of God is enduring forever, and as we read it, it endures and it gives us life because it's living, then somehow we are part of his body. I don't think it's the bride or the church. And I think the bride was that small group that we're talking about. So they were the ones who Jesus promised to come back and save and take. And that Revelation talks about in Revelation 17 and 19. They were the replacement of old Israel. They were the new bride that has come in. Uh, As much as I'd like to say that this applies to us now in the future, we have to admit that that was the, the context of what John was saying, I think. So all we can offer are suppositions, but it seems that those who are his creations continue to be his creations, meaning human beings, I believe. Uh, Those who are his children will continue to be his children. And those who are his sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ, in my estimation, because the, uh, uh, the word of God is living and powerful and it's eternal, I think those who are his sons and daughters continue to be his sons and daughters. Now, uh, again, that is conjecture. When we're reading the scripture, um, it, it does present to us, this is, the, this is it. Christ has his bride, and she is synonymous with the new Jerusalem. Um, but I can definitely say that I believe the new Jerusalem is presented here as the faithful and righteous saints then. So as it says, the new Jerusalem has come down from heaven to earth, which illustrates the fact that the saints on earth are strangers and foreigners, exiles, as it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen. We are not of this world, or they were not of this world, and they ha- we have our citizenship in heaven, Philippians three twenty. All of those things I still think abide with uh, those who are gods. Uh, so something that we covered last week. But there's more imagery here. In John 3.13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so it seems to me that in and through Jesus Christ, who descended from heaven, that his church, the new Jerusalem, the Christian church triumphant, is said to come down from heaven in Revelation 21.2. The reason I think that is because Daniel, uh, the message in Daniel 2 is seems to correlate perfectly with this idea of coming down from heaven now because Daniel 2 is where the rock is cut out without hands and uh, crushes the feet, uh, crushes the statue with the four metals in Daniel. It's very symbolic of this thing coming out from heaven and crushing the Gentile uh, nations. And this rock obviously representing Jesus who's called the rock in the New and Old Testament 
presumably descends from heaven and shatters the Gentile nations. And after shattering the statue, this rock then grows and becomes a large mountain that fills the whole earth. And so, of course, uh, we know that mountains are representative of kingdoms in the Bible. And, and that's in Psalms 2 and Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 51 and Joel 3. So this is imagery of when Christ comes out of heaven, he will crush those idols of the Gentile nations, and then he will roll forth and fill, it, it says, uh, the earth uh, with the, uh, a rock and a mountain being symbolic of his kingdom. Therefore, the mountains represent the kingdom of God, which is stated above, uh, is in the heaven, with the new Jerusalem now. It's a new Jerusalem, that's what's there. And it's rolling forward and filling the earth up. Now, um, in my opinion, that is spiritually applied, this rock rolling forward. The kingdom is spiritual now, and it's rolling forward and filling the earth up. It's not material, but if you're a futurist, many people think that's imagery that is going to actually happen materially here on earth and Jesus will reign over that kingdom that fills the whole earth. Kingdom now proponents in the Christian faith believe that they're establishing the kingdom of God here on earth and that they literally are helping Jesus fill the whole earth with the faith. I see the faith going in a different direction, to tell you the truth. I don't see it as, as this. And of course, the Mormons, uh, the, the Mormons believe that this is the Mormon church. I remember Gordon Hinckley from conference saying, uh, he likened the Mormon church to the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that rolls forth and fills the whole earth. Forgetting the fact that it's Jesus, obviously, uh, in Scripture. So, with Jesus having had the victory over sin and death, the fulfillment of this is seen partially in this world through the spread of Christianity uh, and then totally seen beyond. That's where, how it fills the whole earth, in my estimation. That it's supported by a a plethora of near-death experiences where today people are having them and they're seeing a kingdom there. They're, they're entering into a place where it's light and there's a building of light. And, and, I, and again, that's just something we look to, to just to consider the content. But there's thousands and thousands and thousands of these that go on where people of all types of faith experience this afterlife thing. To me, that's the true kingdom of heaven that has filled the earth. It's bringing in. That's the true victory of Christ. Now, I know that's different than how the evangelicals would say it. And they would think that, you know, uh, the picture is unless you were on the straight and narrow and you were a Christian, born again, you said it, you were saved. Uh, then only then the victory of Christ redeems you. And then only then when you die, do you enter into that glorious heaven with limited number of people uh, and the rest go into a burning hell. But... Uh, it seems to me like through the victory of what we're reading about in, in Revelation here, that this kingdom is going to roll forth and fill the earth. He is going to have the total victory. Something to consider. So, uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, the Jerusalem is on the earth, uh, and it's described as a, in a euphoric state. And uh, Jerusalem that is in heaven is mentioned in Hebrews 12, 22, and in Galatians 4, 6. In other words, the Jerusalem of this world is described in what they call poetic hyperbole. It's beautifully described in Scripture. I believe the reason that post-war Jerusalem 
is sometimes described as a utopia is not in contrast to the joy and peace with the previous but it's because of the despair of the war that was going on in 70 AD that when it is removed from that, it is described in these lofty utopian terms. Now, get this, just as the old Jerusalem at its destruction in Revelation 19.3, remember chapters 19.3, is described with imagery of hell because that's what happened. Fire came down upon them. It was imagery of hell. The new Jerusalem is described here in Revelation 21 and 22 with imagery of heaven. And so when, when uh, Paul says that the new Jerusalem, which is above and is the mother of us all, we can clearly see that we, the old Jerusalem, we have no part in. There's no purpose of it. We don't even, we're not even sure what that means anymore you know, except for a great marketplace for tourists and, and, and a nation of, of uh, supposed different tribal Jews who don't know what tribe they came for, looking to build a supposed future temple with a supposed red heifer and all these things that have been going on for 2,000 years. But the, the real Jerusalem now, since the destruction of the old Jerusalem in 70 AD, is heavenly. And, and part of that heavenly Jerusalem abides in the temples of the people who are believers here on earth today. That we are the temples, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So uh, let's go to the next verse. Whatever the case, we read that John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Imagery of the bride of Christ, verse 3, and John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Now the dwelling of God is with men. So is there a new Jerusalem that's landed on earth and that's the dwelling place of God? Of course not. The new Jerusalem is landed on earth spiritually. And it's in the human beings who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's the new temple that God dwells in. It's not an actual place. The old Jerusalem wasn't overshadowed with the new one. And that's the place where God will reign from, like the futurists will talk about Christ sitting on his throne from Jerusalem and governing the kingdom that fills the earth. No. I heard with a loud voice the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. That is how the dwelling of God works. It's he's with us individually. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. I mean, it's right there. The dwelling of God is with men, said the voice from heaven. And how is it with men in the special uh, new Jerusalem? No, it's in a, the temple that we become. Where have we heard that language before? They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you remember ever hearing that throughout? Well, it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New. Paul too. Uh, Exodus 25.8 and Ezekiel 43. Uh, Ezek the verse I just read to you, verse 3 of, Rome, of Revelation 21. Uh, it is a virtual quote from Leviticus 12. Going all the way back, Leviticus 12 God says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That was the first engagement where God is going to walk among people since Adam. I am going to now walk among you. Of course, uh, we know that in Leviticus, uh, 
the description of the New Jerusalem, we read that God would walk among his people and he would be their God because of, of the presence of the temple among them in Leviticus. It's the presence of the, of the temple and the tabernacle among them, which means he will walk among them. But with us, it's very different. Here in verse 22, the chapter tells us that in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple within the city. So how is it God is walking among us if there's no temple within the city of the New Jerusalem? And how will it come down to heaven and he will walk among us and he will be our God and we will be his people? Um, so what is this New Jerusalem that has come down from heaven to earth where it's described like this? Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will li live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I want to tell you something right now. You can know if you're a Christian if you consider yourself the temple in which God lives. If you don't consider yourself as a place where God dwells, you might want to reconsider your, your faith or your Christianity because that's the whole key of the wrap-up of everything that happened in the New Testament to open the way for God to dwell in the lives of people permanently as long as they're abiding in the faith and abiding in the vine. And he walks with them and they, you have God with you. That is what John is describing. To me, this is the proof that the new Jerusalem is a body of believers in whom God dwells when we're talking about the earth and which makes, uh, which coincides with Paul saying, look at the temple of God is not made with hands. It's not made with hands. It, it's something that is um, living and breathing. It's you. You are the temple of God. And that's support, supported by some passages in the New Testament, which I want to read really quickly. And it harkens back to uh, when I said, do you remember where we heard language like this before? Hebrews eleven sixteen. but now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So it's, it's talking about this. In the old uh, days, they had a country. They had a city. It was prepared. It was brick and mortar, city of David. But now they desire a better country. It's a heavenly country. That's what we're all looking toward, and we're looking to have in our life here. The spiritual element here and the fulfillment of it there. In uh, Hebrews 10, 16, God says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. This is, this is the fulfillment of those verses we have read and studied in the past. That God now writes his laws and, on the minds and hearts of people. He dwells with them when they are believers in his Son here on earth. We are his temple. And, and when it becomes anything more than that, like going into a building or a church and performing rites and rituals that they're demanding. We're going against what God had completely fulfilled in and through his son back in the day, of, uh, wrapping it up in 70 AD. In Hebrews 8, the writer speaks about how God admonished Moses to make a tabernacle that would be a shadow of things to come. And there we read, but now he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Old Testament's the former covenant, which was established upon better promises. Better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, Old Testament, temple, etc., 
then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out from Egypt. Because they continued not my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, after all of that, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man, every neighbor, uh, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So we have people say, well, has that happened? We obviously aren't in that state, so therefore, there's still future things to occur. It has happened completely in those who are his. It has happened completely within the temples that are his. And so he writes his laws on the minds and hearts and he walks with us and he's our God and we're his people. And that is completely abstracted from every religious denomination. Absolutely. They are like trying to be service stations for believers who are coming to have themselves replenished, perhaps by the study of the word or something. But they're just filling stations. They have nothing to do with the fact that God dwells in us now and there's no need for any external uh, types of things. So in this temple city of the New Jerusalem, God freely dwells in spirit with his people as he had within the Holy of Holies. Back in the first temple, he dwelt there. He was among them, now in us. Jesus promised his people that after his death that they would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so in this way, every member of the church body has become a temple of God. That's why Christians have such trouble with Mormon temples. It's because they are anathematic to what God did through his son and then destroying the only temple uh, location on earth is a slap in the face when you erect more temples. And, and so... Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Know you not that you are the temple of God, okay? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is, that is the meaning of it. We don't, we don't need a holy of holies like the temple of old. We don't need a place where you go in the temple for the Mormons and all that. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says this, again, describing this new age we live in of Christ since the destruction of the former temple in 70 AD. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. John is citing that passage right now in Revelation 21 verse 3. That is something that Paul said. And John is saying, look at we're at that place now. We're at that place. So in this beautiful arrangement where God moves into people now, uh, not connected to religious affiliation of any sort, you can be traveling through Afghanistan and you can run into somebody who is a part of his family and God dwells in them and he is their God and he writes his laws upon their mind and heart. They are loving, they're faithful. They may not have everything exact like you do, but like with us, he's working with them like he works with us because they are his temple. And when you meet people like that, you know that something has happened with them, that something God is working in them. And, and that's the, the wonderful part about this day and age, which can't be overemphasized in my opinion. 
Instead, we go back to play religion. Instead, we go back and try to assign the contents of the uh, New Testament to our day and time and try to do all of it. It's a spiritual thing between the individual, subjectively lived. So the former Jerusalem of, of uh, dust and brick and, and, and mortar were bondage. They were, it, was, it was representative of bondage. Uh, that's why Paul wrote in Galatians 4.26, But Jerusalem, which is above, ready, is free. Is free. So if we are part of a heavenly community that's above, which is free, and he adds, which is the mother of us all, by the way, tying it into that idea of it also being the, the bride of Christ, which is the mother of us all. If the Jerusalem which is above is free, God has brought that down to earth. He lives in us as his temples. Then freedom is paramount in the Christian walk. There has to be complete freedom. Because if it's anything but, we're reverting back to a lesser way that God worked very hard, if he works hard, to destroy. You see? Verse uh, 4. Taken as it's written is admittedly difficult when we just read it today. And so it's one where the futurists jump on and say, Ha ha! You don't see that happening now. You ready? Because they're literalists. And they take everything literally because in that they are uh, vouchsafed. Is that the word? It, they're, they're protected because they can pick out these certain verses and say, See? So what they read in verse 4 is John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. And so they say that is definitely, could not be uh, describing something we're in now. So it's a future state, and therefore, Sean, full preterism is uh, heresy. So let me reread it with some emphasis on the wrong syllable, which I like to do. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will, remember John's seeing and hearing, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. So he will, to me, this suggests that upon entrance into the heavenly realm, so just because the new Jerusalem has come down to earth, that passage is not saying he has. It says he will do this. There will be no more this and this and this for the older, thing ha older way has passed away. That allows him to wipe every tear and for all pain to cease at a later date. And that's how you have to, to read that. He will wrap the tears. There will be no more death and mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So what was the old order in this part of Revelation that has passed away? To me, the old order was where there was tears and weeping, stay with me, and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because in the old order, there was no access to God. In the old order, the Jew would die and they would go to Sheol. And so there were tears in the afterlife. And there was wailing and gnashing of teeth. But we read in the previous chapter that Satan and hell have been cast into the lake of fire and there's no more death. So now we enter in in this, in this, in this realm 
which has been going on since 70 AD where the victory has been had and there are no more tears. There's no more weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. There's, there has, the victory is a giant V when you die of victory in heaven. That Christ has done it. So there's no more of this gnashing and weeping. In other words, the fact that there's no more death means that the physically dead in Christ are now raised in heaven immediately without having to go to the way station of hell, Sheol. They aren't going there, uh, which was called the land of the dead because it was separated from God. That's been taken care of. We've entered into the new age of, a new age, I hate to use that because of its connotation, but we've entered into the, the, the um, there was the present age and there was the age to come. We've entered into the age to come in Revelation 21 and 22. Again, the big dividing line, full preterist, the age to come is now. It's spiritually lived and understood. Live it, enjoy it, be free. The futurist, the age to come is coming later on and we can't assign these things to us because we take these passages literally uh, to our day here on earth. Okay? Again, because we're speaking of a heavenly kingdom, I think we can surmise that John is referring to heaven where there is, in, in heaven there is no more crying. In heaven there is no more pain. In heaven there is no more weeping. So that's another way to look at it. Not only the hell part being done with, but in heaven there can't be those things. If John says there's no more weeping, crying, pain, anguish, and there's no more death, then we have to be talking about heaven. We can't be talking about another place. And that's the new age where God lives in us and no man can tell his neighbor, know the Lord, know the Lord, for all will know him. So it's a state of bliss reserved for those in the presence of God in heaven. Some suggest that this is talking about when the Christians went to Pella and they returned to Jerusalem when the war was over and that they, uh, the pain and sorrow and tears that they had, but I can't help but still read this as a reference to the new Jerusalem coming down, we're part of it, and in that place, finally in heaven, there's no pain and joy. They will sorrow no more. As Jeremiah 31, 12 said of the Jewish exiles coming out of exile back in the Old Testament, they will sorrow no more. Uh, but we know that there is certainly sorrow. It has to do with Hebraic speaking and et cetera, et cetera. That's another way to look at it. Isaiah says something uh, similar uh, when the Jews re-enter the promised land. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing flees away. That's Old Testament language for coming back into, um, out of captivity, but it doesn't mean it literally as the futurists try to do with us. So, um, remember, okay, as we've read through the uh, description of the new heaven and the new earth, we read that there are those who will do evil. And... So this age played out here on earth does not mean a perfect utopia of righteousness, which again is a misnomer that the futurists will imply that Revelation 21 and 22 are after everything and we're going to enter into this state. No, no, because we're going to read that the, the, there, those who lie, for instance, will get cast into the lake of fire. So we know that wrongdoing can still exist in the state of bliss that we're reading about in 21 and 22. Again, the state of bliss is for the believer who has God with them in their temple as they sojourn here and die and go to heaven. But it doesn't mean others can't in this 21 and 22 chapters do evil, right? 
So remember Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would bear our sorrows, saying, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is that age of grace that we entered, and if Christ surely bears our sorrows, if Christ bears our sorrows as believers, God in us walking here, then the Hebraic language of there's no more tears and no more suffering and no more sorrow and no more death would apply because Christ has taken them. That's another way to see this passage. I'm throwing them out at you. Um, Romans 14, 17, describing the kingdom of the future age in which began with the apostles and the Lord, I would suggest. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. It begins with that internally in us believers here, and as we die, it continues on there. So we see a contrast between the present age of the Old Covenant that they were writing in throughout the whole New Testament, which was an age that the believers still lived in, in part, the age of law where tears and suffering and the coming age Uh, And they looked with fullness to all things of the former covenant being destroyed, vanishing away, as Paul says. And this kingdom, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and this new earth under a different administration, one not of law, but one of complete and total victorious grace coming into play. So that again, I know you guys know, but that again is the rub. You either are under the law or you are under grace. The victory has either been had or it has not been had. We either are free and God is in us and he writes his laws on our minds and hearts, or we are under the gun of other people leading us and guiding us like deacons, elders, apostles. You know, which is it? And, and we have for centuries played this side as if we're still sort of kind of straddling between the two worlds and we're not. The kingdom of God is not in meat and drink. It is, meaning it's not in the governing of the material things. It is in joy, peace, uh, uh, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. So the promise of no more mourning, crying, and pain, which is fulfilled on earth through the joy of the Holy Spirit, not completely, by the way. We still live in a land of sorrows, just like we still live in a land of sin. Uh, But... That joy we feel or sense somewhat here is fulfilled there. And that's why I think that the no more tears and anguish and suffering is a fulfillment later on. So the New Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22 opens with near identical expression in Revelation 21.1. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 65.17. Behold, it says, I will create a new heavens and new earth. Isaiah writes that. And then we open up Revelation 21, and we read 21.1, And I saw the new heaven and the new earth. So Isaiah had been prophesying of that age to come, and John is saying, I saw it. And this is the order in which it happened. Now listen, in Isaiah's description of the new Jerusalem, which is on earth, he makes it clear that there will still be physical death. Again, Isaiah's description of the new Jerusalem, which is on earth, so John has just said that I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Isaiah makes it clear that there's still death in the new Jerusalem earth sphere. He says in Isaiah 65, 20, never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought to be mere youth. 
He who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So again, that's a, a hyperbolic language that Hebrews used because he says, you know, he who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So it's possible that they could not live to 100. And they would be considered short-sighted, short-lived on, on that realm. Therefore, when Revelation 21.4 states that the New Jerusalem, there will be no more death, we can't say it's talking about physical death in the New Jerusalem here on earth. It's talking about there's no more spiritual death. Death is swallowed up. It's done. Okay? So before Jesus' death for the remission of sins, the old covenant saints had no perfect sacrifice to cleanse them from sin, and therefore the resulting scourge of spiritual death was separation from God and man. That's a spiritual death. And when they died, they went to Sheol, separated from God. Therefore, those Old Testament saints were confined to Sheol. Even when Jesus was walking the earth, that's where they were. Hell, as we uh, describe it. The realm of the dead, the grave, the physical death spot for everybody. Sheol is spiritual death because it's a realm of darkness separated from God. Sheol, the afterlife realm, is translated, as I said, death and hell and the grave. Prior to the seventh trumpet, which we've covered, and the concurrent resurrection, the saints had to await. The saints had to await their, there's the seventh trumpet, by the way, had to await their redemption from Sheol. They were waiting there to be taken out so they could receive their inheritance of faithfulness from heaven because the chasm was still in place. Verse 4 makes it clear in this new covenant age that there's no more death. Which means that, that after the seventh trumpet, the saints no longer had to wait or have to wait in Sheol before they're allowed to enter heaven. We die absent from the body, present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Into the new Jerusalem fully, spiritually. Living with God here with us into the new Jerusalem present fully. All that other stuff cast into the lake of fire. All the threat of Satan and hell cast into the lake of fire, done by the victory of Jesus. I suggest that all dead now are immediately resurrected to heaven after death, and it is here that they will also have no more crying and mourning and pain. That's the victory. Now, remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 54. Speaking of this age, now I say this, brethren, Paul says, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. He's talking to them there. We, he says to them in his letter. And they could believe it was talking to them, or they could say, oh, this is for 2,000 years later. No, okay? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, which we've talked about, the seventh trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this incorruption shall have put on, when, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then we shall be brought to pass. The, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. 
All will be resurrected. We know that from Scripture. There is different, there's better resurrections. But Paul is talking to believers there, and he says, we, this is what's going to happen. And he describes it for them 2,000 years ago. So we are in that stage now. So when anyone thinks that you die and you go to a waiting or you go to a place that's dark or you go to all that, maybe spiritually some of those things could occur. But what the children of Israel were dealing with, that age has been finalized, wrapped up. Okay? So remember 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18. Paul wrote an epistle to those believers in that age. And this is what he said. I would not have you be ignorant, brethren. Don't be ignorant concerning them which are dead. Of those who had died before Jesus promised return. There was a concern about those who had died. Jesus hasn't returned. He says, I'm not, I don't want you to be ignorant. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Don't be sad for those people who have died. Like the people who don't have any hope or sorrow over the people who pass in their life. Don't be that way. And then he goes on, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, again a letter to Thessalonica, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, which Jesus said would be within a generation, shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, people of Thessalonica. Comfort each other with these words from the apostle. He's talking to them about something that was coming, which Peter and John said, the time is now upon us. It's even here. And he's telling them what they can expect. If that was the case then, then Revelation all the way up to 19, is, uh, 20, is done. And we have entered into a different realm, which is what is being described to us here in 21 and 22. At this point, we have heard from a couple of voices in Revelation 21. In verse 3 and 4, John hears a voice from heaven. That's all it says. I heard a voice from heaven. Then at verse 5, John describes the origin of the voice as being from he who is seated on the throne. It could be that this is the same voice from heaven, or the one on the throne is a different voice. Uh, don't know. Whatever the case, the voice speaking in verses 5 through 8 is described as, ready, the one seated on the throne. One, one throne. Okay? There's no two thrones here. No two thrones mentioned right hand of Father. It's the one seated on the throne. So he hears a voice from that one. Now, let's read verses 5 through 8, and you tell me who's speaking, or you just tell yourself rhetorically in your mind. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the string of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly and unbelieving and violent murders and sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, just before we move on to the contents of the verse 8, who is the speaker? That becomes important as we continue on through uh, chapter 21. Some say it's God Almighty. That's God Almighty. That's how they describe it in the commentaries. Uh, and others say it's Jesus. Some say this is Jesus. I have to admit that there's clues, and this is the only place we can get clues, are from both places, or from the scripture, sorry. So the clues from scripture, they cover an assortment of application. And let me explain. I'm going to go to the board, all right? So uh, really quickly, I won't spend very much time on this. We have God the Father, we have both, and we have Jesus. Okay, so the first line, he who was seated on the throne said, okay, uh, he who's seated on the throne, to me, God is always on the throne, but we could probably say both because Jesus is at the right hand, so let's say both, but remembering it is just one throne. I don't know how to explain that. He says, I am making everything new. Did Jesus make everything new or did his father? Even if you're Trinitarian, is Jesus or the father making everything new? Who says that? Okay, I don't know, but I'm going to vote for it's the father. He makes every, he does everything, right? So it's from the father through his son. From the father, scripture talks about, through his son. So when he says, I am making everything new, to me, it's the Father. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. No idea. I'll say both, because the words of both are trustworthy and true. Okay? And he says to me, it is done. Now, Jesus said that on the cross relative to his propitiation for sin, but we've gone through a whole bunch of stuff extra biblical to the cross here. 20 chapters, right? So to me, again, and I know you guys may be voting a different way, when he says it's done, I think that's the Father. I've done everything, everything necessary has occurred. Okay? Maybe the Son, maybe both. But I'm putting the Father there. Who is the Alpha and the Omega? That's the Father. In, it's, yeah. So we can put both? Alpha and Omega. We have two different, we have views here. Quickly, Patrick, what do you say? Jesus? Jesus. What do you say, Richard? Aleph and Tha, too. It's in, it's in the Hebrew and it's in the Greek. And what is it? Who is it? It's Father and Jesus. Okay. So we put both there. Okay. The beginning and the end? Father. Father. Speak. Okay. That says Robert Verdon. This sounds like Jesus to me. Him who is thirsty, I will give drink. 
without cost. That's Jesus said that when he walked on earth. Yeah, I like that. But I know God does too. We're not going to do too much open because no one's mic'd and our audience at home will get mad. But bring it up in the, in the thing. Okay, from the spring that comes the water of life, he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. Scriptures, scripture says that we are joint heirs with Christ, sons and daughters. So how are we his son? Father. Okay. I just wanted to do it with you. I have no idea. I mean, I, I don't. It's just John is hearing a voice from one throne, one voice, and this is what's being told him. It might give us some insight into what the whole deal is about, which I just had to say. Uh, at verse 9, he says, now we have a new speaker. One of the seven angels, remember there's been seven, it says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so go back and let's wrap up verses five through eight. I just wanted to give you, show you that we have another speaker coming forward because that speaker is going to continue to talk and it sounds like later that Jesus is talking, but it's not, it's that angel. All right, go back to verse five and we'll wrap this up. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for, the, for these words are true and faithful. We have two ways we can read this. You can read it actual, literal. You can read it figurative, uh, representational. Okay? Uh, Behold, I make all things new. Actual, literal, representational, figurative. Which, which do you see it? Could it be both? If you are leaning towards the actual, literal interpretation of the one on the throne saying, Behold, I make all things new, then all things have to be new. All things. That means the tooth that I have that's rotting in my head needs to be new. All things need to be new. Or if it is figurative, representational, then all things relative to his new kingdom, the new age, is new and in place. The new heaven and new earth don't mean the entire earth and the entire heavens. It's just the new administration, the economia of those places is new. All things relative to God's dealing with human beings is new. Just depends on how you want to see it. If you're a futurist, you're going to be literal. You're going to say, we need a utopia to look to. So there are problems with that view, and, we'll, uh, and the chapter will point them out clearly. The other view, figurative representational, in my estimation, makes more sense but then again, you've got to be careful because you can, we can make mistakes when it comes to spiritualizing, as they say, t texts that are meant to be literal. So, and that happened, has happened a lot over the course of Christian history where some great thinkers have spiritualized the text so much that Jesus really isn't even a human being and, and you can go down those rabbit trails. Uh, using this passage, futurists will say, well, are all things new? Obviously not. Preterists will say, when Paul says to Christians, all things are become new to a believer. Is that representational or is it literal? It's obviously representational uh, because all things aren't new when you become a Christian in Christ. I still have the belly fat I had when I was born. My teeth are still as decayed now as they were when I became a Christian. All things are not new. So let's, let's avoid the zealotry and just stick to what the reasonable view is of Scripture, and the battle ranges on. I would suggest that God is speaking of everything about the new age made new relative to the old. Verse 6. 
And he said unto me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of living water of life freely. Notice, I will give this. It's an ongoing process. Everything's done. There's two key words here. He says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last, beginning and the end. And if anyone thirsts from the fountain of living water, I'll give it to them. Meaning that the giving of the fountain of living water is not done. So when he says all things are done, he doesn't mean everything is done. He just means everything relative to the former economy being replaced by the new economy is done. That's what John is seeing. And that's why we can concur with the Bible that says the earth is going to go on and on. It's not going to be destroyed. And we're in an age 2,000 years later after this was written where he is still giving the water freely to those who, who thirst it. But still at this place, he can say, all is done and be right because it is all done relative to everything God has established for the salvation of mankind. It's truly good news. So those two phrases are really important. If someone says, look, look it, it says all things are done. Well, read on. He also says, I will give. So everything isn't. It's an age where everything necessary for God's victory over sin and death is done. His son has had the victory. When God says it's done, it's done. We can stop with religion, is my point, in, con in context with everything else we've read. We don't need it. That's the liberating message. But we note that he says, everything's not done, and I will give him that a thirst the water of life. And this is given in the future tense in the Greek. And so we know that uh, over the ages, people have, over the eons, people have been thirsty for truth for the water, and he says, I will give it to them. Throughout this age of everything being done, I will continue, and he will continue to give it. Verse 7, he that overcometh, again, future tense, he that overcometh, he just said all things are done, but he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So we still have the process of people overcoming to my full preterist uh, friends who say everything is done, I concur. God himself says it here. But he simultaneously says, he who overcometh shall, which implies the need for continued growth in the spirit, overcoming the flesh by the spirit, etc., etc., and coming to drink of the water freely and being born from above. So 21 is putting the nail in the fear that non-preterists have that preterism kills anything that has to do with the man-God relationship. The man-God relationship is only liberated more through full preterism, but it's still incumbent that people thirst and they want the water to drink, the living water freely, and they want to overcome so that they can, shall inherit all things that are in that new Jerusalem uh, on high. So again, we can see that the futurist, literalist ideal doesn't hold water here as God is not describing some future state of perfection. So when they describe 21 and 22 as this is going to happen, then they miss the mark in thinking it's a utopia state because we can see that God is still working with people who are seeking, growing, and sinning, which is the next verse. Still overcoming. Okay? So... He finally, he says, in the next verse, reemphasize the point I'm trying to make. God says, but the fearful, 
So if 21 is a utopian state, why are there fearful people? And the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice, shall have their part. Which is why I believe in the purging of the fire of God for those who do not know him here after this life. It's a purging of their part of them that is not concurrent with the victory that Christ has given all men and offered to all people. So I believe that there is a loss, a purging of being in the presence of God. It's not an evil, mean purging. It's a loving purging. It's God, the, the God of fire reaching out to hug someone who is uh, covered in dry wood. He hugs them and whoof, they burn up. That's their part because that's what they bore with them from this life. They can escape all that if they uh, drink of the living water freely. If they um, uh, overcome, all things are theirs. And they move from the New Jerusalem state here into that place without this experience. But he, he clearly points out the fearful and unbelieving. And the whoremongers and the murders and, and all the other stuff will have their part. So when people get mad at me for saying there's no hell... It's unfair because I'm not talking about there's no repercussion for acts. I'm saying there's no dark place that separates us from God. Christ has had the victory over that. But there is afterlife something for those who have rejected what Christ, lived to their own flesh, just like there is afterlife something for those who have died to their flesh and go to God after this life, all through the victory of Christ. Okay. So, in summary, God has finished all things necessary for the redemption of humanity, in my estimation, as described in 20 and admitted here in 21. Hell and Satan and spiritual death is, is over. Uh, cast into the lake of fire. But the lake of fire is called the second death, which was created for Satan and his angels, according to Jesus. So there is loss there. Of some, there's death to something there. Uh, and I don't know how to explain that. We are presently in the new age and there's a new heaven and a new earth where there is a heavenly Jerusalem which believers in Christ are citizens. We're citizens of that kingdom now, here. We will be citizens of that kingdom there. The resurrection is immediate for all people as God gives everyone a heavenly spiritual body of non-corruption to experience heaven. The separation of hell is done and over with, cast in. There is the thought, because the lake of fire is still receiving people post-chapter 19, that those who are not gods by faith in his son here, meaning therefore those who are described post-chapter 19 in the verse we just read, being exposed to the lake of fire. I'm not alone in that belief. There are others who believe, excuse me, believe that too. But the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels, not for man. That's why we only have a part in it. And I suggest that that fire is the eternal fire that God is consuming the dross that we decide to bear with us uh, who are not believers. And there are those who by faith will exist with God and Jesus in the heavenly Jerusalem within its city walls and will experience eternal life with them from within its bounds, from everything we've read thus far. And we'll con continue to describe the heavenly locale next week. Questions? Patricio!
Bible open. Hand raised. Hi, Sean. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Okay. Um, in verse 5, it says, He that sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. These, write these things. What you talked about on the board. Um, for my Bible, which is a red letter edition, these were, and some words in Revelation are in red letter where Jesus is supposedly speaking, but this is not red letter. Really? Yeah. I don't know about your Bible, if it's red letter edition or not. It's not red letter, but that's really in in intriguing. They uh, decided it's not Jesus. Yeah, they, the translator, or I mean the publisher. Who's the publisher? Uh, Holman. Oh, it's pretty good Bibles. Yeah. Well, they decided, no, this is God Almighty. And most scholars agree that most things are over here. Us doing the both was a little bit yeah. of us. But most scholars say it's God the Father speaking. I think it's Jesus because, and the reason why, and I could be wrong, but I think it's Jesus because when Jesus was on earth, who was in Jesus? Right. The Father. Right. The fullness well, of God had dwelt in Christ bodily, Paul said. And God raised Jesus up, gave him a name above every name. He went, became all in all. He's God. So that's why I say it's Jesus. Yeah. And that's how I relate to the Father is Jesus. Well, there is evidence both in Scripture and with many very astute uh, Christian mm -hmm. uh, scholars that believe Jesus is the one we will always have our connection to. He will be the one on the throne and we'll never even have access to the invisible God, which no man can see or come unto, according to Scripture. Oh. That, that we, he will always be the one who is speaking, but it would be God in him as the uh, liaison to man. Yeah. So I have another question really quick. Uh, in the Bible, it says that we wrestle not against flesh, flesh and blood. blood, but against principalities, rules, and darkness of this world. You know that. Yeah. Uh, how does that apply to today? If Saint, since Satan, not if, since, because I'm a full, I, I'm prejudiced now. Since Satan is bound, how does that apply? Well, I think the principalities and powers is a per perfect description because uh, he doesn't say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his demons. He doesn't say that. He says we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual dark uh, places and high places. I think those are the dark forces that have always been, and we wrestle against those. Yeah, but not against people, which is why I would challenge anybody who wrestles with people to not do so. Even including ourselves? If you're part of that, yes. Okay, thanks, Sean. You're awesome. You're awesome, Patrick. Almost as awesome as Pizant. And Robert. I was going to look it up, but uh, it's, uh, it's uh, John chapter 12, 48, 49, 50. Uh, from a member of King James, um, the Father gave Jesus a commandment what he should speak and what he should say. So um, I can speak loud enough. I think everybody. No, we need that. Just we pick it up. Oh, okay. But anyway, uh, John 12, 48, 49, 50, uh, you know, you could easily come away with the conclusion that everything Christ spoke is what the Father told him to speak. So it's just an interesting thought. Um, you know, a lot of things that you put on the board, I would imagine some of it, if not all of it, scholars have been arguing for the last 2,000 years. Yeah. And of course, we all know that for the first three to four hundred years, uh, going to church would cost you your life. Could you could end up with a, in a, an arena with a bunch of lions, 
in Rome. But anyway, so it took a while for scholars to figure out the theology. <clears throat> so because everybody's running for their life, even though they want to worship the Lord. But anyway, the idea that Christ is the Alpha and Omega and the Father's Alpha and Omega, as I said before, they're both identified as such, but yet there's a strong hint that um, the Father does the talking, I guess you could say. Mm. Just a comment. It's a good one, Robert. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Before we end, Rex and Mark are going to sing a duet for us. Love at Home, the, the, the Mormon version. Just kidding. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we seek you and love you. And we, we, we talk about these details, because not to debate and argue and quibble, but to learn and uh, to know you better. And so uh, we're grateful that we could get together in this place and talk openly and we're thankful for your word and we just pray that we will uh, walk in the spirit, that we will allow you to overcome our flesh that gets in the way of how you want us to be, realizing that everything is, that is necessary for the redemption of man, the reconciliation of the world to yourself has been completed, it's done. But now there is that uh, opportunity to drink the living water and then share the living water with people who don't have it. And like Patrick mentioned, we pray that we won't be enticed to uh, wrestle against flesh and blood, that that won't be uh, part of our makeup, that we will uh, just let flesh and blood be what flesh and blood will be and love flesh and blood. And in the meantime, be aware of those dark principalities that still exist, have eternally existed, because where you light exists, there would be shadow and darkness. Help us to understand these things, Lord, and to keep seeking the faith and to be just people stepping back, way back, people who trust and love, people who have faith and live our lives accordingly. We pray for Myrna and her hip. We pray that her, uh, uh, her work with uh, the doctor will go well. We pray for Adam and Brandy and their relationship, that God will work in their life for Gracie and her last chemo treatment this week. This young child with cancer, we pray it will work for Annette, Michael, Robert, and David and all their cancers and the strokes for Diane, the kidney stones and other issues, for Lisa and her battle with cancer, that she'll continue to have victory over that disease, for Diana and her various joint uh, issues and recovery so that she will feel fellowship in her life, for Phyllis and her pancreatitis, pancreatitis. And, uh, <laughs> and we just pray for anybody whose names aren't on here or having difficulty in their lives and relationships and in their jobs and in making ends meet and in their health and all those things that come with being human, help us to realize that we are your temple, that you do abide in us. If we are believers and followers of your son, that we're part of that heavenly host, that new Jerusalem. We, our citizenship is not of this world, even though we can uh, enjoy and live in this world and, and live life more abundantly, that we just keep a light touch on the things of it so that we can have a deeper focus on the, the eternal important things. We love you, Lord, and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.